All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation in chapter 2. In our communion services this year, we've been studying Jesus Christ as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, he who was dead but is alive. And he is the Savior and head of his church with whom he communicates by his word. He observes all its members giving commendation, correction, and consolation according to their needs. So far, we've considered three of these ancient churches in the book of Revelation, all of them having modern-day applications. The church in Ephesus was productive. It was pure and persevering, but it had lost its primary love for the Lord Jesus. The church at Smyrna was a suffering church that endured abject poverty and persecution, and it's the only church that is not um, rebuked in the book of Revelation. The church at Pergamos held to the faith and actually had a martyr by the name of Antipas, but the Lord was upset with this church because she compromised with the pagan culture in which she lived. Some people were holding to the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, which promoted idolatry and sexual immorality. Today, we come to the church in Thyatira at the end of chapter 2. So if you have your Bible there, uh, we're going to read this section, then we'll come back through and we'll talk about it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star." He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing on your word this morning. And even though this was written to a church many hundreds of years ago, it has application for us today. Help us, Lord, uh, not to be a tolerant church, a tolerant of, of false teaching that is so prevalent in the world and false living that results from that. Help us, Lord, to uh, trust in you to help us to be uh, spiritually and morally upright in the society in which we live, 
that we might reach others for the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, the church at Thyatira was the smallest of the seven churches in Revelation, but as you note here, it's got the longest message given to it. It actually began as a military outpost under the Seleucid Empire, and over many uh, decades it was captured, destroyed, and then rebuilt again by a new ruling power because of this military access. But during the Roman uh, power, or during the Roman Empire, it became a healthy commercial city noted for its trade guilds uh, and the production of purple dye, a product which was in much demand, especially by the rich. You remember that Lydia, in the book of Acts, opened her home in Philippi to Paul and Silas, and she was a dealer in this purple dye, and originally from the city of Thyatira. And many believe that it may have been through her that the gospel first came to this city. There was much to commend the church here, as we read, but its main problem was one of tolerating false teaching, which produced sinful living. We hear a lot about toleration today, don't we? We're supposed to tolerate people who have different opinions than we do about politics, morality, religion, ideology, uh, etc. But it's getting to the point that you're only tolerated if you fully accept all the aberrant ideologies that are out there in the world today. But what about the church? What does God say uh, to his people? We tolerate uh, the sinful behavior of the lost because they don't know the Lord. We don't participate in it. We don't agree with it, but we show them love because they need the Lord Jesus as their Savior. And we certainly, as God's people, are not to tolerate wrongdoing in ourselves, in our um, uh, church. That was happening, though, in the city of Thyatira. What some had been dabbling in back in Pergamos was actually being taught now and tolerated in Thyatira. And the Lord Jesus gave his life for us so he could deliver us from sinful behavior, the lust of the flesh. And so he gives a very stern warning to this church to repent of that toleration and immoral living. So let's look at how the Lord communicates to us uh, through Thyatira, the tolerant church. First of all, verse 18, as usual, we have a communication about Christ himself. Each message to the churches begins with some kind of characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ, and usually it's related to what was revealed of him in chapter 1. So we find here that this message, as he gives it to the church at Thyatira, he introduces himself as the Son of God, And interestingly, that's the only time this title is addressed uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ in the whole book of Revelation. It alludes to him as being the second person of the Godhead, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And in this context, it relates to his position of highest authority in the universe with the power and the right to assess all creatures and righteously render judgment over them. And you'll note there, as it said in chapter 1, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, I don't know about you, but once in a while, uh, my eyes get kind of fiery over something. You might have seen this in somebody else. Uh, It's figurative. It's speaking about uh, seeing something, understanding it, and having a response to it. 
Uh, so it reminds us that the Son of God is aware of everything that's going on in the world. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. Nothing escapes his divine scrutiny. And fire is a figure of judgment and sometimes destruction. So it probably indicates there's something going on in this church that the Lord is not happy about. It's worthy even of divine judgment, as we shall see. It's also mentioned here that it has feet of fine brass. Again, another figure of speech. And the main characteristic here, because this is not a word we find elsewhere in Scripture, is the idea of the luster, the shining quality of this medical metal, whatever it was, indicating purity. And so uh, the feet suggest movement. Back in chapter 1, we saw that Christ is moving in the midst of his churches. So his desire is for his church to be pure in motive and activity. And he's always involved in purging us from all moral and spiritual impurity. He's seen here as standing ready to root out the toleration of evil that he sees in this particular church. Then in verse 19, he begins to commend the church at Thyatira uh, for some uh, very commendable activities. And uh, five things are mentioned about them. So let's go through these a little bit quickly. First of all, he says, I know your works. And that's applicable today, isn't it? The Lord knows everything that you do and that I do. He knows uh, whether it's good or, or not. But he mentions here five things. First of all, love and service. Let's put those two things together. Uh, you'll remember that the church at Ephesus had lost its first love, its primary love for Christ, and none of the other churches is commended for love except for Thyatira. And you well know that this love, this particular word in the Bible, is talking about self-sacrificing love that marks God himself, uh, Christ as he came into the world to die in our place on the cross, and the love that he bestows upon those who put their faith and trust in him for salvation. Uh, this is the highest quality of love that one can have, and he can only experience it if you know Christ as your personal Savior. Um, with love goes service. Service is really the basis of, of uh, excuse me, love is rather the basis of service. You serve people because you love them, you care for them. God gives you that love. So our service operates within the church, but would extend to helping others in the world as well through the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he mentions both faith and endurance, which really are kind of connected as well. Faith may refer to our trust in God for all things at all times. It also may allude to being faithful and loyal to the Lord Jesus. In this context, it seems to be associated with, uh, with um, uh, the need to trust God for the strength to endure during difficult times. Uh, the word patience here means putting up with circumstances, enduring under hardships in life. In order to do that, we need to trust God to help us have the right attitude. And then this church also is noted for its increased works for Christ. He says, as for your works, the last are more than the first. And again, if we compare this to the church at Ephesus, they were instructed to repent be, and do the first works. Uh, this church 
did the first works, but now they're increasing over time. The last works are greater than the initial ones. And as Christians grow in their understanding of the Lord, their capacity and their opportunity for doing good and helping people uh, is going to increase rather than dwindle. Now, these are highly commendable qualities. They should be demonstrated in God's people today in his church as it was in Thyatira. However, as the Lord looks at this church, there are a few things he's not very happy about, and now he begins to deal with them. And so we have Christ's condemnation of the church in verse 20. And the first thing that he mentions here is that they are tolerating a false teacher. He says here that you allow a person called Jezebel to teach and seduce my servants. And the verb there, to allow, means to permit or fail to hinder or tolerate. At Pergamos, there were some people holding to a wrong doctrine, leading to wrong practice, but now in Thyatira, they're actually tolerating someone who is not only practicing this, but teaching it. And we need to assume that somehow the church leadership was improperly dealing with the situation and allowing it to go on. Now, the person who is heading this heresy is a woman by the name of Jezebel. Now, that probably was not her real name. It's likely that John is using this name because she's acting like the evil wife of King Ahab, whose name was Jezebel. And it was through her influence that the worship of Baal and the Asherah were brought into Israel. And it was, of course, idolatry, and there was much immoral activity involved in that worship as well. And this woman is doing the same thing in the day of uh, uh, John in the church of Thyatira, and she's following the practice of her ancient prototype. Now, we need to remember by this time historically, the New Testament writings were circulating through the churches. Paul had written at the church of uh, Corinth that women were not to speak in church in the context of prophesying and speaking in tongues. Yet this woman claimed to be a prophetess, and she was teaching in the church. And some apparently believed what she was teaching was true, or they wouldn't have practiced it. And if she says she's a prophetess and they believe that, well, then what she says is directly communicated to us by God. Now, Paul also wrote to Timothy that women were not to usurp authority over men in the church or teach men in the church. And on these counts, then, the church at Thyatira was disobedient. They were tolerating a false prophet in their midst. Now, what is it that this person is teaching that they're not to tolerate? Well, we go down here in verse 20. It says that she's uh, uh, teaching and seducing or deceiving my servants. That means other Christians to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. 
So those were two huge things among uh, the Gentiles that were not to be carried on into the church, into the life of believers. So she's deceiving some of the Lord's servants, teaching that these kinds of activities are okay. And this is the same area of corruption that we found back in Pergamos, but now it's increasing because there are people actually teaching it in the church. Um, If you remember in the book of Acts, when the Jerusalem council met, these were, again, two decisions handed down to the church for Gentile believers. They didn't have to adopt all the Old Testament Jewish things that, that Israel did, but there were two things they could not do. They could not eat meat sacrificed to idols because of the associations, and they were forbidden to participate in acts of sexual immorality. And that applies today because the world's gone crazy in this area. And we could cite many examples of that. So, uh, as, as we think about the idolatry part of it, we also need to understand the guild uh, trades back then at that day. This city, Thyatira, was known more than anything else in that part of the world for its guilds. And that would be very similar to today's um, uh, trade unions. If you had a skill, you would belong to a group of other people with that skill in the city. And there were expectations beyond just, you know, your 12-hour day of going to work. There were also other activities done during the year uh, for the people in that trade guild. And if you weren't participating with that, you'd be in serious trouble. You could be kicked out. You could lose your job. So there's pressure there to do what the guilds did. Now, every year, these uh, particular guilds would hold feasts. They would hold festivals. They would have big parties. And all the people were expected to come who were members of that trade guild. And they would take meat offer it to their particular guild god that protected their guild, whatever god that would be. And then they would sit down and they would participate uh, in the feast. And so you would be associating with the pagan idolatry of the day. And furthermore, all kinds of immoral sexual activity were going on with this as well, with all the drinking and the carrying on and the partying, much like we see in modern times. So the false teaching is saying, well, this, this is okay. One commentator put it this way. Since an idol, this, this would be the thinking of the, of the false teacher. Since an idol has no real existence, you need not hesitate to go along with the simple requirements of the trade guild and participate in a common meal dedicated to some idol. Well, We all know that behind idols, even though these are false gods, the devil stands. Paul's written that elsewhere. And it would also include some twisted reasoning about participating in the immorality as well. And the Lord Jesus himself is upset with this as he is today. So the purity of worship and the purity of life was at stake in this church, and thus the testimony to the whole city of Thyatira. 
True Christianity is based on exclusive worship of God and a life of godly behavior untainted by the world. It teaches separation from the world and its ideologies, not toleration of it. Well, what's to be done about this? And you'll note there, as we read earlier, this is very serious because of the description of the judgment the Lord sends on this church or says will come to this church if there's not repentance. So we now have Christ's correction of the church. Now we come to verse 21 and we see the Lord's grace. That the Lord does not deal with us immediately when we go astray, when we go our own way. He says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. But she did not repent. So the Lord doesn't arbitrarily judge his church. He apparently at some point gave warning to this woman, maybe through the elders of the church, we're not exactly sure. Uh, She herself is involved in her own teaching, yet she has persistently refused to repent, meaning she doesn't really want to. And this is an indication of the recalcitrance of unbelief. Now, the consequence of this unrepented attitude is just judgment by the Son of God with the fiery eyes and the feet that are burnished like brass. So that shows the serious nature of the the things that are going on there by the seriousness of the judgment that's described here. He says that she is going to be violently, violently thrown into a sick bed. And I think that that means more than she's just going to get sick. This is a, this is a serious thing. <clears throat> the idiom of her sin is going to be the idiom of her punishment, the idea of, of the bed of sin, so to speak. And a sick bed indicates a terrible illness that may lead to death, not just physically, but spiritually. So it's the most serious thing you could think of. A similar fate awaits those who partner with her false teaching and immoral practices. They're going to be cast into great tribulation, verse 22, unless they repent of their deeds. There's always that open door that God is ready to receive if you will repent and turn to him, whatever the sin might be. But so far, nobody has done that. Now, later in Revelation, the great tribulation is a period of time in which the Lord will send severe judgment on the whole world of Christ's rejectors, and it's indicative of a final, eternal punishment. Yet that door is still open. He's merciful. He's gracious. He gives people time to repent. But if they refuse, ultimately, some form of punishment is going to come. Then in verse 23, I will kill her children with death. Well, it's got to be really serious in the mind of the Lord. This means that all who follow her teachings and adhere um, uh, to her practices are going to receive judgment. And death here alludes to pestilence or a contagious deadly disease, again with that 
idea behind it that this could be a spiritually final type of thing. Now, all of this is going to serve as a powerful reminder to the churches in the end of verse 23. And I will give to each one of you according to your work. So the principle of uh, sowing and reaping always comes out in the word of God. Through this judgment, uh, people are going to understand the Alpha and Omega knows everything about them. He searches your innermost being. He knows what goes on there. He knows our thoughts. He knows our feelings. He knows our desires. He knows our motivations. And we're responsible to keep these within the will of God through his power, through his help. And then he says that um, you're going to receive retribution or remuneration for all your works. And... uh, We all know the Bible is very clear that as we serve God and do his will and are involved in good works, well, someday he's going to reward us for that, but he can't reward the opposite. He will have to bring retribution. All right, so that leads us now uh, from the seriousness of the situation to the group of people who are rejecting this kind of theology and uh, living. So we see in verses 24 to 29, Christ's consolation to the church. And he always gives a consolation, some words of comfort to the churches that he writes to. And this consists of, first of all, a command, and then two gifts. In verses 24 and 25, the Lord says, Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan. So these are, um, we're not exactly sure if they're a remnant or if they might be in the majority, but obviously they're not the people in charge of getting rid of this heresy. Um, They're people who are not tolerating the doctrine of Jezebel and the lifestyle that comes from that. They have not known the deep things of Satan. As they say, this refers back to what the um, false teachers are saying. And again, there's a lot of thoughts and ideas of what's involved in that. But it could very well mean, uh, as it has in other places in New Testament writings, that this is a group of people who think they're deeply spiritual, uh, they're, they're, they're higher in their understanding, they have greater tolerance because they understand the evil things as well as the good, and so they're on a, a, a higher level of spirituality. So they say, so they believe, um, but they may say certain things about their doctrine and behavior But we know that if it doesn't agree with what the Bible teaches, there are deceptions of Satan that lead people astray. Now the Lord places on those who have refused this doctrine and uh, uh, who have been living pure lives that he will put on you no other burden. Well, what is the burden? Hold fast what you have till I come. Now, what have these people been holding fast to? Well, we go back to the commendation and we see it there. Well, love and service and faith and endurance 
and good works. Well, you keep holding fast to that. You keep doing the right thing, uh, and, and God will reward you, and God will help you, and he'll help you get through this situation. So he's not going to place on them any other burden than to keep on keeping on the way that you have. And again, uh, one of the things that the Lord repeats through Scripture is for us to hold fast, to be steadfast until he comes. And this imperative stresses the urgency of the situation. It alludes to holding on as a single decisive action, a once-for-all effort. You don't ever give up. You don't ever quit. And so this is what we allude to as the perseverance of the saints and the word of God. They endure to the end. They keep on keeping on, no matter how difficult things in life might become. Now, the Lord Jesus closes here with two gifts to the overcomer. And he who overcomes. Now, we've talked about that before. Um, some believe that this is like maybe a special group that are super faithful and super spiritual. But we've kind of come to the conclusion that he's talking about persevering Christians. All of us persevere to the end, and so we are going to be overcomers. And we are overcomers now. When we get to heaven, we'll be recognized as that as well. And so to these overcomers, the Lord gives a promise as we keep uh, his work until the end. First of all, he says, I will give power over the nations if you skip the quote and continue as I also received from my Father. So the Lord Jesus had received the authority to judge all those who reject him as Savior. And uh, that judgment is going to be in a future day. We believe it's going to reign on this earth for a period of time. And uh, those who have overcome, those who endure, those who persevere, are going to uh, have authority over the nations with him as God gave him that authority. And he mentions here, as we read earlier in Psalm 2, this is taken from verse 9, that he'll rule them with a rod of iron. Don't you wish there would be a little bit of that rule today? With a rod of iron, with no toleration of evil and wrongdoing. Of course, uh, that's really impossible in our day. But one day that will happen. And they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. In other words, those who rebel against the Lord are going to be dealt with immediately. And of course, being who he is, he will always give righteous judgment. So we, we, uh, we look to this promise here. We look forward to the day when Christ will come, when he will rule, and we will rule with him. And then he closes with one other thought in verse 28. I will give him the morning star. Now, sometimes it's not a good idea to read commentaries because you'll have like 10 different uh, applications or thoughts to what this means. But most commentators believe that the morning star is Christ himself. As a matter of fact, in Revelation uh, 22, he calls himself the bright and morning star. So many believe he's speaking of himself there, that he's giving himself to those who 
persevere. And he'll guide them into the new dawn of, of his millennial reign. But we should probably add to this perhaps the concept um, uh, of the image of his people being like shining objects, like shining stars in his kingdom. For instance, in Daniel chapter 12, it's written, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And Jesus spoke in similar language when he said, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in, the, in his kingdom, in the kingdom of their father. So perhaps there's some aspect that uh, we will shine with Christ in that day. Those who refuse to tolerate false doctrine and sinful lifestyle are going to shine throughout all of eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as always, there is that serious reminder which he ends all of his messages with. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we're responsible to listen to what God has to say, even as he wrote these things a couple thousand years ago. They're still prevalent and relevant to our day. So let's draw some applications from what the Lord has told us through this church. First of all, our Lord is aware of our church. What is commendable? What is not? What is tolerated? What is not? His fiery eyes observe the good, the bad, what needs to be refined, what needs to be removed. He searches your mind and your heart as he does mine. What does he find there? Then we're reminded that Christ's love is to motivate our service and faith in God supports our endurance. Are you serving others in love? How are you serving others if you make that claim? We all face trials in life of different types. How do we endure them? How do we bear up under them? Well, only as we put our trust in Christ to give us the strength to do that. We may wonder how the church could tolerate this type of false teaching back in that day. But is it not happening in churches today as well? The sexual revolution has made inroads into God's church. There's acceptance and toleration of the LGBTQ movement, the standards of moral purity are constantly under attack and in some cases being lowered. And we may not bow to idols in the West, but we bow to ideologies and isms and entertainment and activities that could be worldly, they could be selfish, and they're more important to us than God. Is that not an idol? Do we take time to assess where we stand with the Lord on a regular basis? And what do we allow? What do we tolerate in our life? Do we maximize or minimize our relationship with the Lord Jesus? Then we're also reminded that the Lord will tolerate our toleration for only so long. He gives us time to repent, but that time is limited. And then he will have to deal with us in chastisement. 
We're always urged in Scripture to hold fast that which is true and holy. And we are again here. This is the part of our salvation that I mentioned we call perseverance. And those who persevere will be saved in the end. And that's not because of our grit and our determination, but the grace of God helping us to carry on until Christ comes or we go to him in glory. And finally, do you long for the day when he comes and the evil, the sinfulness, the failures of humanity, its attempt at government will be under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ who is perfect and holy? What an encouragement for us to dwell on each day instead of all the ills going on in the world. And may our focus of life be on that day rather than the present day in which we live. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for the truth of your word. We're thankful, Lord, for its constant application no matter what generation it's preached to. We pray, Lord, today that you help us to be unlike the church at Thyatira in regard to toleration. Help us, Lord, to realize that you place upon us uh, the responsibility of purity, of being like the Lord Jesus Christ, of not putting other things uh, in life uh, more important than you are. And Lord, we pray you'd help us to take upon ourselves the things commended in that church, like love and service and faith uh, to endure trials and good works that increase rather than dwindle as life moves forward. And Lord, as we come before your table today, help us to be reminded again that it is only through Christ that we can resist the temptations of the world, that we can uh, uh, not tolerate uh, that which is evil and wicked, whether it be teaching or living. And so, Lord, we're, we're thankful for the time we have before you today. Help us to search our hearts as we come before your table, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.